Welcome back to the Kaiku Podcast. Chris and Chris are with me. Hello. Hey, everyone. And we are here to continue uh, our journey with Agent Cooper, his buddies, uh, in the town of Twin Peaks, investigating the murder of Laura Palmer. Um, well, I have nothing else to say on the matter for now. Chris, take it away. <laughs> All right, so what we're, do- what we're talking about today is the first nine episodes of season two. Um, thus concluding the Laura Palmer mystery, if you were, so to speak. Um, but before we get started, we really do need to talk about the elephant in the room. We really do need to clear the air before we can talk productively about the lots and lots of things that are going on here. Um, so I should have put in a warning for those that are listening that are following along. I don't know how many of you there are, um, but there is a case of uh, some racist uh, depictions going on in this season of Twin Peaks. We have a character who, full spoilers, is Catherine Martell, who is supposedly dead from the the mill fire. She shows back up in town in full-on yellow face, pretending to be a Japanese businessman in her scheme to try and weasel away money uh, and the land from Ben Horn. Um, This is a 90s TV show, and they probably thought it was okay because they didn't have an actor portraying an Asian character. They weren't doing yellow face. It was an actor portraying a villain portraying a person in yellow face. And it's all still very gross and icky, so I'd first like to apologize to anyone who uh, is watching along with us and... uh, hit that moment because it's very obvious and we're pretty stunned by it um and offended you're you're heard and you are in your full rights it's it's a despicable thing uh cory i think you should take it away from here uh yeah so this happened first in season two episode four i'm just looking through my notes to make sure i have all of these things correct but in this episode they have uh uh, uh, a storyline where Hank and Norma are like, oh, there's this uh, critic called Empty Wentz. They're going to come to this town. Uh, we need to get the restaurant all fancy. Next, around the beginning of the episode, and by the end of the episode, uh, all I have here is someone is doing a bad Asian accent at the Great Northern could do without it. Like, that's the only impression that I got uh, at the beginning because you didn't really get a good look at uh, what Catherine was doing. It was kind of dark. Uh, but then by the next episode, you see, maybe it's the next episode or the following episode, but, uh, you see the full-on yellow face with, uh, Catherine and Ben talking about the deal. He, she is trying to weasel him out of the, the mill, as says, or as Chris said. Um, it was just, like, extremely jarring and, like, really unfortunate for me 
Uh, not just because I am Asian, but also because like I enjoy Twin Peaks still. I enjoyed that storyline up until that point, but uh, it just completely took all the winds out of the sails from that story, and I just became completely uninterested in it because there's no good reason to do this uh, besides it being a product of its time in the 90s when uh, I guess we didn't care as much about uh, about racism then, which is true. Um, there's two other, th- three other things now that I'm reading my notes. Jesus, I forgot about this. Uh, for one, the Catherine's character's name is called Tojimura, or at least that's how it's credited in the credits, but Ben keeps saying Tajimura, and, like, that is such a little thing where you can say the name right. Uh, but besides that, uh, Tojimura says, I know a little bit about fire, because they're talking about the mill. My family was in Nagasaki. And all Ben says was, I'm sorry. And Jesus Christ, <laughs> this line in the series. How could this happen? But whatever. Uh, and then later on, um, what is the receptionist named Lucy? And her sister come in, and she has uh, a baby with her. And um, it's her sister's baby, and they just talk with Hawk for a minute. And it's like, Hawk, I don't know. Lucy's sister's like, Hawk, I don't know how... You could even like white people with all of the things that we've done to you. And Hawk, which is the reaction that I assume every non-white person is having at this moment, is some of my best friends are white. And he just walks away. <laughs> the look he shoots her, too. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, Twin Peaks Season 2 is um, still very good. I liked it a lot. Um, but that is obviously one huge gaffe that I could do without. And with it, it's never going to be my favorite thing. Um, like, season one is still incredible, and could be one of the greatest seasons of television, but, uh, season two is a huge, huge step down just from this. Yep. And, in part of, you know, David Lynch's thing is where he doesn't talk about his works. We don't know whose idea this was. Um, the episode is written by Jerry Stahl, Mark Frost, Harley Payton and Robert Engels. So Harley Payton and Robert Engels are two of the producers on the show. Robert Engels uh, particularly took over most of the rest of season two that we're going to talk about next time. Um, And Mark Frost is the co-creator along with David Lynch. So we got three showrunners being credited with writing on this episode. And I'm sure David Lynch had to give his A-OK. So like, it seems like everybody from the top down is at fault here. Um, who, whose idea it was, who was the dumb nuts that decided to give this a shot, um, I don't think we'll ever know, but it doesn't matter because everyone from the top down, someone someone along the way could have not approved this, and maybe they were overvoted or something like that, but damn, to go through that many people. Yeah, and I wonder about, like, uh, there's obviously not many Asians in this show at all. Uh, I started counting just, like, the non-white people, and I think there's four or five up to this point, which is, I think, typical for a 90s television series. I won't really knock it for that. Um, but, like, the couple Asians that they do have are Zhong Chen, who is uh, at least boarding China. I don't know if she was raised here or anything. Just skimming through her Wikipedia says that she uh, went to Shanghai International Studies University, majored in English, so... Uh, that probably explains the relative lack of accent on her, but she's also not uh, raised in U.S. Chinese. Um, so, like, there's not really someone there who could point out that, hey, this is 
at least on the actor side, and not that they could do anything. Uh, being an actor and having zero power, basically, but not someone there that could point out that this is very problematic. Yeah. And one of the other things that I think is really curious is because this is such a big deal. I mean, it really is a big deal. This show, this show is huge in Japan. Like, I would love to, like, even Hideo Kojima, you know, the film video game maker, he adores Twin Peaks. Like, what, I, I just want to know, like, what went through their minds when this character happened, because it is a Japanese character that she is portraying. And that whole, that bullshit Nakasaki line, like, was that just translated it right out of there? Um, you wonder about something like that. I I wonder more if, like, they're angrier that there have been Chinese characters, uh, I mean, Japanese actors portraying Chinese characters, I believe, or the other way around, uh, more than the, the depiction of a white actor playing an Asian person. They might find that clever. I don't want to speak for them, but... Um, I can't imagine that that would, well, that would be top of mind for them. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really sorry that that happened to all of the, all of you listeners out there at the end of the episode, I will warn you about one of the things that pops up in the next batch of episodes just to cover the bases. Um, but yeah, really sorry. Uh, Chris, any thoughts on uh, um, the mess? Yeah. Oh, I don't have too much to add. I think, um, what was, what has already been said covers a lot of it. Um, my initial reaction when I saw it was like the same as, as yours in that that episode where like, you know, and it also I'm watching this at like 11 o'clock right before I go to bed. So I'm just like, oh, that's, you know, that person's doing a bad impression. Um, and I didn't even like put the pieces together like, oh, shit, this is going to be a recurring character. And then the next episode, I my eyes rolled basically into the back of my head. Um, and I was because I realized like I didn't real I didn't actually realize it was Catherine, but I knew it was someone we'd probably, you know be established as an established character trying to screw over ben horn out of his um money and and the land um but i mean overall like i i will say like that storyline that's the point where i just stopped caring about it like i was like this is a really dumb storyline overall and like every character besides basically Catherine martell is in some other story arc in the show so it's like just like everybody's doing like involved in some other thread so except her um so it just made it really i guess almost natural for me just to kind of tune it out and judging by the fact that i had never heard of this occurring before i think a lot of twin peaks fans had probably done the same yeah that's something i noticed uh i didn't google too hard about it but i'm just like google twin peaks yellowface Catherine, i think a couple other things but uh basically no writing is done about this uh, in a, at least a professional um, professional sense. I saw like maybe a Tumblr blog or something like something similar to that, um, which of course are also valid. But I can click on them uh, because they're probably not going to get the same traction that uh, something like Vulture or New York Times or whatever would get. Um, and I I guess I find that kind of surprising, especially with the return happening while people were writing about it like i saw i think one article that was like and this is not the only time remember when catherine dressed up in yellow face and like that sentence was it uh i i would think that it being such a cold classic there would be something else about it but apparently not yeah i think there's just there's so much going on in the series that it's easier to sweep it under the rug and you know no i I've never come across anybody who thought it was okay 
or you know liked the this particular aspect but it is relatively easy to just kind of brush it away which shouldn't you know shouldn't happen it shouldn't just be brushed away it should be raged about but uh there's just so much else to like that you know i don't want i don't want this to deter anyone from trying to enjoy twin peaks if it does you know that's that's your prerogative it makes me sad but you know it shouldn't but that's just how i'm broken um i would say you could almost cut out like just do an edited version at least through these nine episodes of every scene involving that Catherine and that character and i mean it wouldn't affect you would you would know everything else that's going on and nothing else would like there's one scene that overlaps with uh josie where um ben basically has um that that check that was given to him but that's like the only scene i can think that well all connects so far the scene where they arrest ben oh yeah oh yeah he's there that's right she's there whatever the stupid racist things there but yes besides that this is a very the, the everything with the laura palmer mystery is is as strong as it was i felt in season one um there is a there is the signs that the seams are coming undone the threads aren't like threads are kind of going out in their own direction um but i mean like and, and as a result stories the stories are becoming a little more isolated which is going back to that point like that everything with the mill feels like it's almost its own show compared to everything else minus very minimal overlap yeah it kind of feels like uh they just wanted ben to be busy with something ben and carrie to be busy with something god their names are ben and carrie again anyway uh, <laughs> uh while everything else was going on because like they don't want you to forget about these characters and their existence because they play such an integral role in the lagger parks of these this set of episodes um and i guess this mill thing is really the only thing and even josie has like the uh she doesn't show up that much to begin with but even she has the relationship with harry that uh they can fall back on or they could fall back on a couple more times just to keep her front of mind um but with ben and jerry it's, it's nothing except for their brie and ice cream names <laughs> and the smoked pig all right the smoked pig or the bug what was it like a uh butter that looked like a smoked pig no that was a smoked pig okay not burning my pig all right is there anything else to touch up on this topic or shall we continue with uh the rest of the season i wrote down that it was a uh, piece of smoked cheese shaped like a pig maybe i was in smoked cheese shaped like a pig yeah smoked cheese yeah you're correct oh Smoked pig, yes. Still check out. Never mind. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> Smoked cheese pig. My mistake. All right. So um, one of the things moving forward um, about season two that is immediately, like literally immediately apparent is that this is where David Lynch starts to get a bit weird with the series. Season one was more or less very straightforward in its depiction of a of a like a crime drama you had real human characters who were potential suspects you had all this crazy stuff like the dream in the red room with the dwarf but it it was a dream and everything was grounded now at the very beginning of the episode we we have um senor drool cup as albert so succinctly called him the world's oldest waiter coming into Cooper's room while he's laying on the floor, shot, dying, 
and after 10 minutes of one of my favorite comedy bits, I've heard about you. Um, Cooper is visited by a giant. And it becomes apparent throughout the course of these episodes that these are not dreams, that there actually is a supernatural giant, um, and that Bob may be a supernatural being. These are all... David Lynch is normally credited with the really weird stuff that happens in this show, and Mark Frost is usually credited with the more mundane you know, TV series elements of it. Um, and you can really tell that with these first, the first two episodes, because they were both directed by David Lynch, and especially episode six, which was also directed by David Lynch, which is the episode where we find out who Laura Palmer's killer is and the death of Maddie Ferguson. Um, this is what th- this is actually the section of episodes where I start to just really fall in love with the series, which is awful because of the, the yellow face incident. Um, because this is where it starts getting really weird and really interesting. And some of the, the scenes in here are just pure nightmare fuel. Some of the scariest, most effective scenes of horror that I've ever seen in a TV show, even more so than Hannibal. Um, it, it's just, it's more effectively chilling. Um, as Chris had mentioned, the storylines start to splinter, um, and we're we're becoming less tethered to Laura Palmer, and we're starting to experience the individual lives of the other people in Twin Peaks a little bit more freely. Um, so I guess we should start with you know let's start with what are some of the things that we loved. I loved the supernatural elements that were creeping in, where it starts to get really weird. What about you two, Corey? I was not prepared. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you. I uh, I really like the supernatural elements with it. I think the the horror aspects, especially with Bab, um, are uh, quite interesting and uh, extremely compelling. Um, what was the thing? Oh, so when uh, the first episode, when Cooper is dying, he's about to sign the check for his milk, uh, and it's the <laughs> decrepit old man. He's like, does this include gratuity? I thought that was just an incredible line about Cooper, he cares more about other people as he is dying than he is himself. Um, uh, but yeah, um, like I was, like I said before, there's uh, a bunch, a bunch to like about this, uh, this series, or this stack of episodes in this season, and I did really like it. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting things going on, uh, especially with uh, the supernatural elements where Cooper is just trying to dig deeper and deeper into uh, literal magic, as Albert puts it, uh, just to, to solve this mystery of these people dying. And, like, I think one of my favorite things uh, or moments in this series was um, Albert just grabbing Cooper, being like, go on your, go on your dreams, uh, do whatever, just find these killers like albert this very huge man of science is finally like cooper you have to do something please stop this go on whatever vision quest you require yeah yeah i would i mean the the supernatural elements those particular scenes um that is you especially see it in the david lynch directed episodes like just so incredibly filmed and and just there's a scene. I think it's at the start of the ep- of uh, the last David Lynch directed episode when they are at the Great Northern with the one armed man. 
Um, I believe it was in the yeah yeah it's at the start of that and um, there's all the pe- all the uh, people in military um, dress walking around and it's just like this brilliant scene that just leaves you slightly uncomfortable the entire time and then he kind of collapses uh, you know he, he has the, the climactic event at the end of that scene um, as, a, as a certain character gets close to him uh, it's just overall like you just don't get that really from anyone else like I all of that was so good again we get, we can go back to um, episode two the scene where um, Donna is at the, the and I forget their names but the grandmother and her magician grandson uh, and she's like, my grandson is studying magic. Like, equal parts hilarious and uncomfortably, uh, like, just deeply unsettling at the exact same time. Like, really, like, n- very hard to pull that off. Um, like, I just did not, like, I'm like, do I laugh? Do I cower behind pillows right now? What's going on? <laughs> What's um, amazing is that kid is David Lynch's son, and he looks just like him. It's so funny. Yeah. I didn't even know he's like. Um, also, the, um, like, that and, and so much of that ties into the Laura Palmer mystery, which was kind of my big takeaway from this season, from this batch of episodes. As the threads start to 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 drift, you know, drift apart, like the crux of the show was this Laura Palmer mystery, um, and like everything with that through through all seventeen episodes of the Laura Palmer mystery is just a plus 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 television. Like it's so like just brilliant. Like from start to finish like even as you start they start to narrow uh, you know as a viewer you start to narrow like okay like obviously there there's like these these people harold were introduced to um who know something and just are not for whatever reason like revealing it like what exactly is going on and it's because the truth is so horrifying as we learn with with bob um and, and you know i could go like just the, the the scene where we see um you know maddie die um that ten that scene is is just horrifying as horrifying as network tv can get um even then like and it's not a, a david lynch directed episode but once we know who the killer is like and and donna is interacting with them alone like it's just such edge of your seat tension without the surrealism because we had all of that horrifying stuff before um so it pays its dividends later when david lynch is not directing an episode as well um yeah i could go on hospital food like that hospital food was just absolutely terrifying the stuff of nightmares like and i know hospital food has never been that bad right like i i assume it has never been that disgusting it's never been that disgusting but it was i remember when i was a kid like that was an ongoing joke like people would be like you do not eat hospital food and so when i was like 18 or 19 i started working at a hospital i was like i ain't touching that hospital <laughs> yeah this is a, a joke straight out of the 90s where like seinfeld said this once and now everyone is doing it oh yeah speaking of seinfeld i made a note i forget which which actor showed up but like there's a lot of seinfeld actors overlap in this show <laughs> and as someone who's watched a lot of seinfeld i'm like oh yeah that's uh I know that person. Um, Warren Frost and uh, Peggy Lipton are both recurring Seinfeld characters, um, and there's a couple others. Uh, I'm, it's, they're escaping them. They're escaping me right now. But um, there's there's a lot. I've just found it humorous, like Twin Peaks to Seinfeld. But yes, Seinfeld is absolutely what's the deal with hospital food joke. 
Uh, good stuff. Anyone else have any 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 likes before I, I lead into the big question? Uh, yeah, one uh, one more thing. I do like uh, the the storylines that are kind of more um, steeped in realism as well, uh, especially or the first half of the season about when uh, Audrey is trapped at One Eye Jacks with Blackie and she is trying to get this information. Uh, I believe that was throughout the the end of the second or the first season as well. Trying to get information about like what is One Eye Jacks, how is this related to the Laura Palmer murders. Um, and she finds out a lot of information, including that her dad uh, owns the owns the place has had sex with everyone at the place and almost had sex with her, which is uh, kind of horrifying in a in a funny way, the way that they set it up, which is also weird. But um, just Cooper getting there, saving her, and Hawk throwing a fucking axe at a guy and just <laughs> killing him. Oh, yeah, that, that scene at when the basically the one-eyed Jack's raid scene is, is spectacular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and that's one where it's like a lot of... Uh, a lot of normal tension because like Donna and Leland, you know that Leland is uh, is Bob, but you are wondering like is he Bob right now? Um, and like that adds to the tension. But this one, it's just these uh, these normal folks going into one Ajax, uh, and then uh, what, what is it? I don't remember his first name, but the other Renault brother. Jean. Jean Renault. Jean, yeah. Oh my god, Jean and Jacques? What is this, an anime with twins? Um, Jean, Jacques, and Bernie. <laughs> uh, we're like, they're basically all killing each other, and by the time that Cooper and Harry get there, they're pretty much all dead, except for these grunts that are just told to not let Audrey leave, and they're just still fighting for it. I never noticed that before. <laughs> but yeah, I w- another thing with, with One-Eyed Jacks, like, it's, yeah, just... The, Audrey's Im- imprisonment there, just like the the back and f- the 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 kind of tension that that like her presence there has. But the fact that everybody at One Eye Jacks clearly has no love for anybody else affiliated with One Eye Jacks. It's like <laughs> who's sleeping with who, who's gonna kill who next. It's yeah. like, I mean, I I'm a sucker for any kind of overly dramatic storytelling <laughs> like that. So yeah, one of the storylines that's one of my absolute favorite storylines. We get more of it in the next batch of episodes, but it's set up here. I will go to bat for the Nadine storyline any day of the week. I yeah, her turning into super, a superhuman is interesting. Yeah, superhuman. She's eighteen. Yeah, who believes? Oh, yeah, super she's teen. 18. Yeah, she <laughs> she she reincarnated in this life as an anime character. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think that is, uh, that's not one of my favorite storylines, but I think it does serve its purpose well as just this, uh, additional intriguing thing that is happening. Like, they say that she is, uh, hopped up on adrenaline, but I assume one cannot be hopped up on adrenaline their entire life. Um, and it also, uh, breaks the tension of a lot of scenes and allows the, the rest of the series to breathe while we don't really have to think about who is killing slash fucking who. The introduction of some good old comedy relief. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to do a spoiler bit here just because uh, it deserves to be talked about. But first, I'm going to ask, you know, Corey already blurted it out, but it's okay. Up to this point in the series, who did you guys think killed Laura Palmer? Chris? I went I went back and forth between a couple people. Um, I 
did early, very early on, um, like totally rule Leland out. And then um, as the season went on and it's like, it was very clear. It was no, none of the kids um, who I also wanted to touch on, like kids need to stop getting in adults business. Like nothing good is ever <laughs> is happening to any of the kids in this, this town because they are trying to be like smarter and better than the adults and outsmarting people. Um, but um, yeah, I ruled all the kids out. I mean, I basically, and I knew Leo was very obviously the red herring from the start. Um, I had kind of gone to Ben, like Laura was going to do something that would upset the balance of power with Ben. And I, the show clearly makes us want to go that route. Um, but then when it's like, it's someone at the great Northern, I was like, there are literally two people at the great Northern it could be. So it was then better Leland, but I was still taken by a bit, a bit of surprise when it was revealed as just because it's his daughter, but clearly it wasn't Leland. It was actually Bob possessing Leland. So Leland remains innocent. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, I really had no, uh, impression of who the killer was and I wasn't really trying to figure it out on my own either. Um, just because all all of the other things are so compelling, and then once they added this uh, fantastical fantastical element of Mike and you hear Mike talk about Bob, but you have no idea who Bob is, obviously, uh, at the time, um, it became a little more apparent that it it's probably not someone that is a person, but someone who is like this Mike Bob type of person. Um, but you know, like the the Renault brothers were top of mind. Leo was top of mind, but like even if it was Leo, what kind of information or satisfaction are we going to get out of that? Um, New shoes. That's <laughs> another. Uh, I mean, the the whole series just knows when to break the the drama and the tension with comedy like that or like Nadine. Um, that's just very very good. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't have any impression that it would be Leland or, I guess, Leland's body that was doing this, uh, just because of how great Ray Wise's act- acting was uh, in the in season one, as he just completely breaks apart. And in season two, when he just comes back completely fine, because he feels like he has dealt with the killer himself in Jacques Renault. And like I think that that was Leland that killed Jacques Renault. And Bob is just hanging out, being like, yes, kill Chakra now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I, it does a good, uh, a good job at providing enough subterfuge where you can really have no idea until you learn about Bob's existence that it could be, it could be this person with, uh, with long hair that keeps appearing in visions. Yeah. So now, now that we know that Leland, Laura's dad, was the, the killer had bob inside of him what does that do what what is what what did that do to your psyche knowing all the things that laura had gone through i had not so even considered this but I now it's, it's I, screwing me up yeah sorry to interrupt. she she like it, it's touched at very briefly when they read that page of the her diary like right before um her murder or maybe it was the the last entry was the day day she was killed. Like just knowing that that her I guess running from the the demon is no longer possible. Like and realizing it's going to be her father who does it to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get uh, 
that last diary entry that Ghana reads from Laura's secret diary that Harold had, and God, how complicated is this series just by saying that sentence? But, uh, <laughs> uh, that was just completely haunting. And, um, also Laura knows that, uh, something is going to happen to her. She probably had these visions as well, I assume, since Bob was, uh, part of Leland from, uh, from childhood. He is, or that is something that was, uh, if not inherited, just kind of inert, in, inherently sensed by Laura in some way. Um, so she knew somehow what was happening to her. She had the same dream that Cooper had. Um, and she knows that she is going to be killed. Uh, did she say that, that uh, she knew it was going to be her dad in the diary? She said, she said tonight is uh, the night I die, I think. Okay. Something something into that effect yeah but um just knowing that laura from her point of view was being killed by her father uh, i assume her father was not acting like her father at that time so she was wondering what was going on but like jesus um her and maggie who was killed by her uncle but yeah um so one of the interesting things that happened when this series was originally airing in the break between season one and season two there was actually a book published. It was The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer. So that came out before season two started airing. So you had in your in your grubby mitts if you were a super fan back that back in nineteen ninety and you have already read Laura Palmer's diary. It goes through the, all the, the, the plot line with Harold and she's trying to read from the diary and you get these stories and all this other stuff. It's it's a great tie in. But reading that book after knowing that Leland um, is Bob is one of the most fucking terrifying books. Like it's already pretty terrifying. Like that book is hardcore. Um, but knowing that every time that she talks about Bob, she's talking about her dad, adds so much to uh, the weight of that book. And I, I. I'm glad to hear that both of you were kind of like not thinking about it that way. Um, I have my own purposes for asking that question and why uh, I like your responses uh, that I'll get to in a few months. <laughs> um, I assume you're referring to the return. No, uh, referring to uh, the movie. Oh, okay. It's just like, right now I'm, I'm thinking about the scene where Leland kills Maddie and it's just absolutely heartbreaking and terrifying. And you, you, you get the glimpses at the end of the first episode of this season when Renette has that dream about the night that Laura died and there's the flashes of Bob killing Laura. Fuck. Um, I've, I, as someone who's seen the series multiple times, um, it, carries, it carries a lot of weight with it. And rewatching the series with the knowledge beforehand, no, it, the interesting thing is it never changes the series. It doesn't transform it into something else. It's still very much what we are presented with the first time, and that makes it all the more tragic that we 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 know Leland has these real tears for his daughter, but he killed her. Um, it all makes sense later on, but it's just fuck. Sorry. Yeah, and I think you get, or they played the scene between Leland and Maggie 
or Bob and Nagy as it was, uh, very well. In that you uh, you see the, the the depravity of Bob killing Maggie and doing all these violent acts toward her, and then you see um, at least glimpses of Leland in there when he's kind of uh, holding Maggie, and then it seems like Bob is uh, more strangling Maggie or uh, uh, like bear hugging rather than embracing. Um, yeah. So it's like there's the this internal struggle between them where uh, you know one wants to kill Maggie and one does not. Yeah, uh, before the return came out, that episode was my second favorite episode of television. Just everything about that is so masterful. Um, like you're talking about the push and pull between Leland and Bob, even though they're one and the same. Ugh, so good. <laughs> One one thing with that scene, and I and I and I'm gonna guess the movie may elaborate on it more, or um, maybe later in the show is is Sarah Palmer just like I mean, it looks like she's just like screaming in a helpless sense, like Bob is here, like she's seen this before. Mm, yeah, well, it's one one of the things that I wish. Uh, so the white horse, she sees the white horse that. It's such a cool image, but it's like one of those images that people that makes people just kind of go, "Oh, this is just fucking weird for weird's sake." But uh, there was ah uh, oh, shit, I didn't prepare for it. There are um, introductions from the log lady that are at the beginning of every episode. If you are watching it on uh, the disc and you choose to play it with the episodic extras from the the first, it, they they were additionally filmed and added on for its syndication run after it got canceled and the log lady talks about the whole the horse um and i wish i let me see if i can look it up real quick because i think it's a really profound sentence that she speaks that really helps tie into yeah while you look that up i'll say that i i had those discs uh there's like log lady intros there's uh, commentaries. I think there is some some other like either after or before thing that you can watch too. So these discs are like chock full of episode by episode extras that just seem incredible, and I did not want to watch any of them because I just want to be on a adulterated series. But uh, the next time I watch this, I I will definitely be watching all of those. Yeah, I've seen I've seen all of the extras. <laughs> I, I've I've watched those discs dry. Um, at the very least, the log lady intros are incre- incredible. Yeah, I was unaware of these. I actually, I actually, one log lady was one of the things that I had heard. Like people, when people mentioned Twin Peaks, like stuff about like people just mentioned the log lady a lot. And so I thought she had a bigger role in the show, but I guess that's now how the bigger role happens. Like she's the all-knowing seer of sorts. I mean, maybe I'm off base, but like I haven't seen, I didn't, I haven't watching on the disc so. Um, but that, that, I guess, must be where a lot of the people, you know, associating the show with the Log Lady comes from. Yeah, from the, the reruns with yeah. the intros. So I found it. Um, the, the line, I'll, re- I'll read the whole, the whole poem that she reads. A poem is lovely as a tree. As the night wind blows, the boughs move to and fro. The rustling, the magic rustling that brings on the dark dream. The dream of suffering and pain. Pain for the victim, pain for the inflictor of pain, a circle of pain, a circle of suffering. Woe to those who behold the pale horse. And then there's also uh, 
the old saying, death rides a pale horse. Um, woe to those who see the pale horse, death rides a pale horse. Um, so that, that's the, that's the meaning of the, 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 the horse guys. That's it. I mean, sure. Um, I completely understand that. Thank you, David Link. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh God, let's see what else to talk about. What do you think about the episode? Um, the final episode when they, the characters of Twin Peaks find out that it's Leland and they lock him in the cell and Bob goes hog wild. What are your guys's, how did you guys dig all that? It was unsettling in keeping with some other theme, like unsettling scenes in the show. But at the same time, I mean, it's that, you know, the demon, the demonic, the demon possessing the body and like the demon going berserk isn't something I hadn't seen before. Um, in that whole setup, like, uh, Dale realizing who it is and just roping Leland along um, so that, you know, because I guess if Leland knew it was him without being in the cell, Bob would have gotten him out of it, I guess is what Dale's conclusion is. Um, and so that's why Dale just ropes Leland along unsuspecting and then tosses him in, at which point Bob fully takes over and forces his way out of the body by killing the body of Leland. Mm-hmm. Um like it's really un- uncomfortable, and then at the very end, like after when when after Le- Leland is is effectively killed and he's just lying there, like he just realize it's you you get back to like season one Leland where he's just this horribly grief stricken father, except now he's like it was my hand that did it, and he's just accepting you know that his body is of no use to the world anymore. It was yeah, it was a powerful scene. Um, just it's like just this this family tragedy. Um, but at the same time, it's it's this demon's fault that we are, you know, we're going to have to explore in more detail at some point, I think, um, I hope, um, just because, you know, the demon is still out there. But yeah. God, I just feel terrible for the whole family. So I, I, I have no idea what Sarah Palmer is going to be going through now. Oh, my God. Um, but yeah, I thought this was, it was an incredible scene, and not just for all the things that you said, Chris, but also... Um, the moments before that when Cooper is like alright uh then or they're at the uh roadhouse slash courthouse which is absurd and hilarious and extremely Twin Peaks the town uh but also the television series but um they're at the roadhouse and he says alright Ben uh come with us um Leland you might also want to come with us to provide legal counsel like that is such a brilliant line and then uh, they get to the place, and Cooper just whispers into Harry's ear, and I think this is like the second or third time in the entire series where someone says something and we don't hear it, which is such a, a, a great use of it as well. Um, and we don't know what's really happening here, or maybe we're guessing what's really happening here. Um, but then he says, all right, open the door, then head on in. And Leland's like, Ben, I'm with you all the way. And then they just shove Leland in. Uh, <laughs> but just a, an incredible uh, series of scenes that happened there. Mm-hmm. My favorite, my favorite thumbs up gif was was shown to the world. That's I, I was I I was wondering what episode that was from because I, I it's used all the time even by people who've never seen Twin Peaks because it's it's great. <laughs> like the thumbs up of I got this. I just wish there was a gif of him giving a thumbs up to the waiter while he's dying on the floor. <laughs> you have to be the king you want to see in the world, Chris. <laughs> oh, 
be the change. Now I gotta figure out how to make gifts. Yep. Oh, all right. Um, is there anything else that anyone wants to talk about in terms of these episodes and what we like? Going through my notes, um, yeah, I mean, I touched on it earlier. Like, uh, kids, please do not get involved in adults' business. Um, <laughs> like, Harold killed himself. Um, Bobby, Bobby is now basically stuck taking care of an invalid Leo because he got greedy, not realizing what taxes fees were for forty-two dollars. For forty-two dollars, <laughs> uh, like just God, kids, you, you idiots. Kids are dumb. Is the message of these arcs, um, and then and then just like just not just that. Like I mean, and and I guess I mean I theorize what happened to Maddie would have happened no matter what, but um, I, I, just everything that Donna has seen, um, including going back to the house of the um, magician boy, and it's like there's no boy who lives here. I've lived here for years. Like she's just seeing so much stuff, and it's like. If she just didn't want to get involved in solving the mystery, ignorance is bliss. She wouldn't deal with whatever emotional trauma she is going to undergo in the next set of episodes. Um, and so, you know, I feel very bad for Donna, um, especially um, yeah. just because there's a lot of death that she has been closely tied to, um, as well as, you know, she's not going to be able to get out because now there's an, an added mystery um, that she's been exposed to. Um, and then I don't feel as bad for Bobby. <laughs> I feel zero remorse for Bobby, but <laughs> uh, yeah, Donna, they, she saw or she had her best friend die. Um, she's now dating her best friend's boyfriend, which is uh, a strange and understandable situation for high schoolers. But I don't think that relationship is going to last. Uh, she seems to be the direct or indirect cause of someone committing suicide. And uh, now her best friend's cousin, who she was becoming very close friends with, has also died through by by the same person who happens to be their very close relative. Uh, there's just a lot going on in Donna Hayward's world, and uh, well, thank God her, her dad is a doctor. I assume they have very good health care. Sure as fuck hope so. Um, yeah, with the uh, Cooper, Leland, Bob scene. Uh, I wrote down the the lines here. Cooper, did you kill Laura Palmer? Bob, he how he just howls uh, a few times, <laughs> and then says yes. Um, gosh, uh, if Ray Wise did not win an Emmy for the series, he should be given an honorary Emmy. He did not, and yes, he should. Yeah, he's he was brilliant. Oh, I have one more. It's kind of one of the maybe the f- more comedy bits is Lucy and Andy this season. And Andy talking about his sperms. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a whole damn town. <laughs> oh. Yeah, and given that that is like uh, not even, of course, not an A or B story, but more like an F or G story, we get like a couple minutes every episode, or sometimes every other episode. So. <laughs> We get, like the first scene is uh, he finds like he finds out that uh, his sperm were uh, infertile, uh, whatever the terminology is. Uh, I think that might have been last season. But then like we just keep going. It's like all right, can I get a test? Runs into Lucy in the hallway, dropping the magazine, and she's like, "You're disgusting." At work, uh, <laughs> he drops the vial. He's like, "Cooper, this is very personal matter." It's like, "Where no, did you get boots. that? Don't ask me that. <laughs> Don't make me answer that." 
but yeah, this is the the trajectory of that story. Again, this series knows when to insert comedy into moments just to to clear the tension. One of my my, my other absolute favorite things. Um, we only get one episode of it here, and it's a damn tragedy. But we finally get in the flesh David Lynch as director Gordon Cole. Yeah, that, we finally get David Lynch as director Golden Gordon Cole in these episodes. Yes, he and my everything God. that's said to him, I love it. <laughs> it's one of the funniest characters in all of TV for me. Everything he says and everything he does and how he says it is just money. Yeah, and I like how Cooper. He's I think he's kind of forgotten how to interact with Cole uh, being in Twin Peaks for a couple weeks at this point. So he says uh, like. Or he says, like, Harry, Cole would like me, would like you to get blah, blah, blah. And Cole is like, Harry, can you get me this? <laughs> and he's saying the exact same thing, of course, because he just cannot every, hear. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like every line of dialogue. It's like someone says something, and then Cole just loudly repeats it. Like, whatever's being said to him, Cole just loudly repeats, <laughs> like, it in the opposite form. Yeah. Yep. I think my favorite moment with Cole was when uh, they go into the office, and he's like, Cooper, I'd like to talk to you about something very private. Can we go into the office? And then he's, like, screaming in the office, of course, and everyone can hear him. I love... I love you. you remind me today of a small Mexican chihuahua. <laughs> and then later on, you blink and you miss it, but, but Cooper's all like, so what's this about a chihuahua? <laughs> so Harry, then, just shrugs. Absolutely, just pure bliss pure bliss um all right so uh to kind of steer this in the the closing direction aside from the yellow face and the guff with the mill to steal from uh one of our quite our one question what did we dislike about these batch of episodes chris i don't think i disliked much beyond what was just mentioned but there is that sense that stuff's really kind of veering into every the different storylines are really veering apart from each other um and it's perhaps maybe a bit too much we got to keep these characters busy and on screen until we can kind of loop them back into what they need to be looped into mm-hmm. for like the main i guess whatever the core storyline is i don't know if that format's going to keep going this feels like it's headed towards almost a soap opera where there's seven eight there's a b c d e f g but they're all kind of you know, each episode maybe flips a little. Who, what's the prime storyline based on where the big climactic event occurs? I, I just because there's so much going on um, within the storylines. Um, but yeah, that's the only thing I would say I don't like. It's just the sense that there might be too much going on. But that hasn't hit yet. As much as it's like a weird, uneasy feeling that it might come. It's funny you mentioned too much going on. I almost forgot to. To tell y'all, Kate, her favorite line in all of Twin Peaks is in the first episode of season two, when Cooper finally wakes up in the hospital after being shot, and uh, Lucy starts rambling off all the things that happened at the end of of, uh, season one during the cliffhanger, and Cooper just looks at them. (laughs) How long was I out? (laughs) (laughs) That's almost him. Like that's almost him just talking to the audience. Like, yes, there's a lot going on in the show. <laughs> exactly. Didn't they have like a? This is like ninety early nineties television, but like a collect call line. You could 
Cole and Lucy would like run down everything that's gone on in the show so far? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if it's on the bonus features that are on the the Blu-rays, but on the the old DVD set, it was totally a a bonus feature. And and it's it's Lucy and a couple other characters. Uh, I can't remember exactly the specifics. I only listened to them once, but there there was a 1-900 number. Uh, I, f- I also wrote down the notes of what Lucy said. I believe this is uh, verbatim, but it might be slightly off. Leo Johnson was shot. Jacques Renault was strangled. The mill burned. Shelley and Pete got smoke inhalation. Catherine and Josie are missing. Nadine is in a coma from sleeping pills. <laughs> How long was I out? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah. Corey, what about you? Dislikes, aside from... Uh, besides the yellow face, obviously, there is a couple of other random um, depiction of Asian things. Uh, like, Cooper is obviously very into the spiritual, but um, it's also that he's, like, obsessed with Tibet and the Dalai Lama, which is also an Asian thing. And he is, of course, a white character, uh, and, like, the centralizing that is... Um, I would not say the point of fetishizing it, but it is just kind of weird, uh, a weird insertion. Not that the Dalai Lama is, like, something that white people cannot admire. He, he seems like a good guy, generally, but... He's supposedly one of the best guys. Yeah. Um, but I, I think in uh, the insertion of it with basically no other Asian characters is strange. Um... But I, I didn't think it's over, overly bad or weird. Um, Josie being... I, I read about this, too. They, someone wrote that Josie was kind of the uh, Asian, Asian seductress. Um, and I don't know I don't know how much of that is true, but I'm also not an Asian woman, so I will not speak to that. But I wanted to put that out into the world um, on this podcast to all of my dozens of listeners. Um, uh, I mean, in terms of, like things not relating to uh, the continent of Asia <laughs> uh, is not really anything that I dislike, just things that I'm indifferent to. Um, the the mill, well, now the mill storyline is something I dislike, but it, uh, putting that aside, I'm just kind of indifferent to the mill storyline. Um, the Nadine storyline and Bobby and Shelley, um, I guess the fact that Shelley is dating a high schooler is something that I dislike and like do these uh do these kids go to school do they like the the one I, I know there's a couple scenes in the first season when they're in school but now in the second season the one uh mention that we get of it is Bobby being like uh I'm already missing econ class here I can't and I think that was like more of a realization for Shelly to be like oh god I'm still getting a high schooler what's happening to my life to deal with Leo and this kid well, remember, Shelly is also a high school age. She she's dropped still out. high school age? Okay. I thought she, she was... She was in Bobby's class, wasn't she? And she just dropped out? That makes it a little better. I thought she was a little older. Uh, I do not remember that she dropped out. It's still... Yeah. Um, like, Shelly's got bigger shit to worry about than Bobby's econ class. Fucking Bobby. He's <laughs> <laughs> going to look into business. Yeah. Getting into business. And he's thinking more executive suite. <laughs> Oh, good. Um, for me personally, there's honestly like nothing I dislike about these batch of episodes aside from the yellow face. Um, like the the stuff with the mill 
you know, it's it's periphery, but I don't dislike it. I just I think these are the strongest batch of episodes aside from the finale. Uh, the finale is was the greatest episode of TV uh, ever aired. Now the return has taken over, but uh, that finale is going to be a wonder. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't wait to watch the rest of the season, uh, to watch Firewalk with me, watch, uh, The Return. Um, I am incredibly, incredibly interested in this series as a whole, um, and without more Catherine as Tojimura, I am just even more excited. Yes, that, that storyline is done, it's over, pushed it. Alright, cool, well, does anyone have any final thoughts, anything else that they want to add before we just wrap this up? Um, I think I cover. I'm reading through my notes. I think I covered just about everything. Um, again, like I mean, you know, the 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 the, the thing about this show is like, and this is the but the the storyline with the mill and with with the yellow face depiction is the extreme example of it. But this is a show that if there is one part you don't like, there's like seven or eight other things going on at the same time that you might like or might love. Um. And, and when making television, especially when you're doing an hour-long episode, that's so important. Um, there are multiple TV shows, prestige, peak TV, whatever you want to call them, that have kind of fallen apart at the seam, that have fallen apart because they just make everything... All right, Game of Thrones. They make ev- they make they just like make everything come together in like this horribly forced way, um, and. Um, Whereas each, you know, storyline kind of branched out, um, and then, you know, but they're like, oh, we need to waste time with these characters for, you know, this season with original content because we need to just keep them on screen. Like, you know, that's my trauma from the, I guess, you know, just the experience with that is making me uneasy about the the fact that everything in Twin Peaks is spiraling into their own self-contained stories. But um, I hope, you know, and based on what I've heard, um, it doesn't sound like that will be an issue, um, but you know that's just one thing. It's just the anxiety that you're doing too much, and then you're going to try to bring everybody together and force things together here and there for no reason other than you know we need to. I'm guessing by your laughter, it does not happen that way. <laughs> things happen. Yeah, I mean things happen to the <laughs> to the point of uh, everything, um, or there being so many storylines. I the way I structured my notes is basically one bullet point per scene. Um, I mean, not exactly scene, because they, within the storylines, they sometimes go from place to place, which would technically be, technically be different scenes in a script. But um, each storyline, like when they cut from one thing to another thing, it's about 20, 20 things, uh, and that's cutting, cutting a lot between what Cooper is doing, obviously, uh, that probably makes up uh, a quarter a quarter of these scenes and then everything else is the rest of the episode which uh, of course sometimes feeds into this uh, feeds into the Cooper storyline with uh, Laura Palmer but sometimes it's not um, and I think that's just uh, uh, really highlights like there is so much going on and most of it is Cooper obviously uh, but even when it's not it's, it's not really that long um, it's a couple minutes and if you're you're willing to tolerate the worst parts of this series or the stuff that you dislike um then there's just so much more that is to like in this agree i think it's a super rewarding show um narratively 
Like, I even get stuff out of it that's, like, philosophical and shit. Like, I really... Everybody knows this is, like, my favorite thing, so... (laughs) Um, There's a lot to get out of this series, um, because there's just a lot going on, and the return is even more dense. The return is psychotically dense. God. (laughs) Like, every time I rewatch The Return, I'm like, holy shit, I can't believe I'm only on episode three. I forgot, I forgot all this stuff happened just those two episodes. Um, it's so incredibly dense. Uh, but good. I'm glad that you both are still enjoying the series. That's that's happy for me just to, as a, a form of validation, but also it makes for better talks. Um, the last thing I will mention before we move on to the one question, uh, which I think we've touched on a lot, but we can go into more depth, is uh, Harold's suicide notes. At the end, it just says, Jayun M, Solitaire, uh, I'm a Lonely Soul, which is the exact thing that Brad Delp, the lead singer of Boston, wrote before he died, and I wanted to point that out because I was like, oh, I, re- I remember that happening. I remember 2008, Brad Delp passed away. He wrote that thing in his notes. Uh, he wrote a bunch of things because he... Uh, I'm about to talk about, in relative detail, about the ways in which he died, so content warnings there. He um, closed the door and... Uh, put himself to rest by uh, CO2 inhalation. He, I forget what he set up, but he set up something to the point where that would kill him. Um, and he wrote a bunch of notes that said there is uh, CO2 in this area. Please be careful because he he just wanted to kill himself. He didn't want to harm anybody else. And um, I don't know. I found that particularly poignant just because I am a fan of Boston the band, but maybe zero other people did. I did not know that. I wondered if Brad Delp was a fan of Twin Peaks, but I guess uh, I'll have to Google that later, see if he ever talked about it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead. Um, let's knock out the, the one question real quick. I'm sorry. I'm trying to shift on an air mattress, and it's going horribly. <laughs> I quit. All right. So what is our one question uh, or comment that you want to shout out on here, Corey? Uh, from our friend Elliot Page, how excited are you about all the guff about the mill, aka the stuff that everyone forgets about from Twin Peaks? There's a reason people forget about it. <laughs> Once that mill burned down, it was just like picking up, picking up the scraps, trying to t- try to button it up. Yeah. But uh, there is more guff about the mill in the rest of season two, and I actually really like that. So take that. Yeah, I mean, there. Are, I imagine there has to be something about. Uh, you know, Josie and Ben and Pete with the mill. Um, I am curious, don't answer this question, I'm curious about whether they go into, like, the several dozen jobs that are lost in uh, this very small town in which I assume there are not several dozen jobs in which they can just move somewhere else. But uh, that, that's kind of unfortunate for them. But uh, I guess that's just uh, what happens when it burns down. It really sucks. Yeah. The rich get richer. Goddamn fucking rich people. Chris? Um, yeah, I think... Yeah, I, I actually, the good point about the, the mill burning down is the fact that it's established in season one like it's the, like almost the lifeblood of the whole town. Like, the whole town's been built up because of this mill. And they don't seem to really touch on that in season two um, beyond the fact that it's burnt down. Um, it won't be coming back. Uh, clearly, there's ambitious real estate developers trying to... Um, do their own thing with that land um which you know is moderately compelling but 
in the scope of everything going on in Twin Peaks, like just that description alone is kind of like I don't really care about this. Like this show's strength is much more focused on the characters than this, you know, machinations to develop a nice resort. Uh, it's just kind of it's it's definitely one of the the storyline of all the storylines it's the one i definitely was least invested in um at once like once it burnt down really like that felt like the conclusion of that storyline whether you know like who would do what and then you know everything season two is like let's just try to keep that storyline going for some reason but if you're telling me i mean maybe maybe there's some things to it on the back end that'll be much more interesting yeah i think when is Pine Weasel. Uh, I think Twin Peaks is an interesting uh, and beautiful enough town. Like It has that waterfall from not just the opening, but you see it a couple other times. You can see it from the Great Northern. Uh, I imagine that would be just a really, really nice place to go visit. They probably have like hiking trails somewhere around. Um, it's the kind of place... Or it reminds me of a place like Bozeman, Montana, which I read about recently. Um, and I've been there to go skiing as well, but um, just a really nice place to visit. Uh, you can get a, a Verbo or a, a Airbnb or something and hang out. Uh, or in this, in this case, you're still building like hotel real estate and stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, Twin Peaks is a seems like a nice place to visit. Uh, I understand why they would want to destroy a mill and create tourism in this place. I assume that creates a different kind of job. But in in the interim, the kind of skilled workers that they had at the mill are no longer needed there and if they do get a new job at this new uh, facility it's going to be a completely different type of job. If only we had free schooling to just re-educate them so that they would be equipped for whatever job that they could get. Ah, how foolish. That only happens in one situation where it works out really well and then no one else follows it. <laughs> Shocks. Alright, well it was great talking with everybody. Um, so to cue everybody up for what we're talking about next time, next time we're just going to finish out the rest of season two. So episodes 10 through 22, it's 13 episodes. Everybody listening to this and even Corey and uh, Chris, especially Corey, because Corey has not seen these episodes. This is, this is where he stopped the first time he was watching the show. You will have undoubtedly heard throughout the internet that the next batch of episodes are not very good. I will stand up and say that is not true, but there are a lot of storylines that are going to occur that are not good. Um, it, it does get a little bit rough. I won't lie to you. Just keep in mind that this is reportedly when David Lynch stopped overseeing so much of the series. He stopped being as invested because when he had to show who killed Laura Palmer, that was it for him. You can see the threads of what he started, what him and Mark Frost started, starting to, to we, you know, continue to wheedle their way through these episodes, but they really pick back up in the last four or five episodes. So essentially, if you're struggling while watching the episodes, just binge it. That's what I do. I binge these episodes. Uh, but li literally, when David Lynch returns to the series, I mean literally because he comes back as Gordon Cole, when that episode hits, you are back on A-plus track. So um, you are back on the A-plus track. And the problematic uh, storyline of these batch of episodes 
I'm just going to go ahead and lay it flat out here for you guys. It's not it's not nearly as bad as the yellow face. In fact, one would consider it not bad at all. Just really, really ill-advised. Ben, after being released from prison, has a mental breakdown. And in order to cope with his mental breakdown, he retreats into an imaginary world where he is a Confederate soldier during the Civil War. And he is trying to win the battle against the tyranny of the North. Sure, Ben. Sure. Yeah. Doctor yeah. Jacoby. Doctor Jacoby gives some some uh, some guff, some 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 padding around that, and says that if he's able to reverse the most irreversible thing in this country's history, it will allow him to rebound from the the fall that he's taken. Which, sure, Doctor Doctor Jacoby, let's go let's go with that, but. Really, really. You know, maybe, uh, maybe Ben needs to be uh, feeling up some under hula skirt ties as well instead of thinking about the Confederacy. That's right. So, so get ready, get ready for a lot of smack talking and uh, praise in General Lee. It's, it's, it's pretty funny, but it's still very unfortunate. And thankfully, it's not a very, it's, it's not, it doesn't last too long. I think maybe like three or four episodes. Ben is a weird character anyway. Just uh, check out during that time, as I did last time that Ben was on screen. (laughs) (laughs) It's Ben, time to check my phone. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like I said, I I binge these episodes. It's about seven or eight episodes that start getting a little bit rough. But I still think that the, the Cooper plots are A+, so don't check out totally. Enjoy what you can out of the series. Some people love all of it. Good for them. Some people don't like any of it. Such it is. But when David Lynch shows back up on screen, A plus territory. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I am too. I think, and especially based on everything I've heard about how the the this season, um, which was for the longest time, the end of the show wraps up. It seems like it's worth getting through what might be some rough rough uh, waters until we get there. Yeah, I mean, what I'm really looking forward to is the return, and I have to watch this to get there, so... Yes. All right. Well, Corey, take it away. Uh, sure. Let's uh, close out this section. Where can we find both of you on the internet? Chris? So you're both named Chris. Uh, why don't you go first? <laughs> you can find me on the Twitters, at GoKoofy, and also on Letterboxd, at GoKoofy. My YouTube channel has fallen silent because of life and life is even more hectic now so I don't know when I'll get back on that horse but still watching movies still writing about them on Letterboxd so come say hi I am on Twitter uh, at Antonius Pius um, mildly active uh, life has been pretty hectic for me um, so not too much um, movie criticism beyond uh, or in TV criticism beyond uh, doing stuff like this but um, always follow me if you want Alright, let's take a short break, and I'll be back with Ink to talk about, uh, dear God, Zestivus, the Roman Fighter. We are back. Ink has joined me. Hey, guys. Uh, do you have any 
hot takes on Twin Peaks before we jump into this far worse show. It's so good. It's so good. It is very good. I, I really just can't say anything more. Like you have to. The only way to watch Twin Peaks is to watch Twin Peaks. <laughs> like don't don't listen to anyone talk about it until you have seen it because it's it's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so we're not going to be talking about that again. Uh, we are going to be talking about Cestivus, the Roman fighter. Uh, and oh, I don't boy. know if you've been to the Wikipedia page, Inc., but I'm about to give you a uh, frightening piece of information if you have not. This is a currently 25-volume manga that has been running since 1997. And because they wanted to honor that longish run for the manga, they threw in a really badly rendered... CG anime adaptation of it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. They sure did. Um, so this is in the Plus Ultra block, which uh, some better shows were in, like Caroling Tuesday, Beastars, Greek Pretender, the other Beastars, not the other Beastars, but the second season of Beastars, uh, all very good shows, and also some stuff that I haven't heard of um, and haven't watched, but uh, it also had Cestivus, which ran for 11 episodes just now, from April to June. Um, and I don't even know where to begin with this series. Uh, it is about Cestivus, and, uh, a Roman fighter. Surprise. But he's also a slave. Um, in the early goings of the series, he was, I believe he was sold from one owner to another, and that second owner was, uh, able to train him up with, a with a real slave fighter, who is, like, now a slave train trainer fighter. I don't know the relationships here that's going on. Um, Wasn't it all like a big free-for-all in the beginning to decide who would actually be able to be sold to other people? That kind of thing. I mean, I remember that was a thing with, uh, what's-his-face, Emden, but uh, yeah. I didn't remember if that was also a Cestivus. Hey, congratulations on actually remembering Emden's name, because I was just going to call him Silver-Haired Dude who I, fight, I fights with not, the most I, While I said the sentence, I went back to the Wikipedia article and searched through the names very quickly. <laughs> <gasps> Folks, this anime is so memorable. Uh, it is it's memorable in a bad way. Um, but yeah, that's that's the basic gist of it. Um, this show is not good. Um, like, not only is, is the story not very compelling, it's just like Sustavus learns how to fight, and then he happens to win all of his fights in various ways, um, but also it seems to glorify, or at the very least, not at all acknowledge... The, the problematic nature of slavery. Um, yeah, like, everyone's so willing to be a slave, they don't gripe about it at all. Yeah. There's no, you know, uh, bad things that happen or come about because of it. There's no physical ailments or, uh, you know, uh, there's nothing. There's no there's no bad, there's no consequences to being a slave, evidently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, they just seem to be treated, um, I mean, they're treated, Poorly, but like they're given meals, they're given uh, work to do, obviously because they're they're slaves, they're unpaid. Um, but it's not as if they seem to be living in any sort of squalor or in some sort of uh, concentration camp. N not really camp, but concentration shack. Um, they they seem to to live, you know, far enough away from each other to be comfortable when they're sleeping and such, but. Uh, and they're able to, to, to walk around on, on the large Roman grounds, I don't know, train and stuff. I don't, very strange relationship between the, the owner and the slaves. And the owner, we don't actually see that much, um, just a couple times, like, during the fights. Is, is the bigger guy, this is sort of more plump I think so. guy draped in a toga? Yeah. 
because I, I do actually like that character design. I, I think it, I think it really works. But uh, and you know that you could say that was them trying to portray like an upper class as you know um, obese and you know well better off while all the slaves are um, you know scrawny and gaunt. Um, yeah. But no, because all the slaves are like in top peak physical condition, <laughs> with like abs of steel and very well fed. And uh, yeah. Yep. <sighs> yeah. Um, I'm like already out of things <laughs> to talk about, but like he has a couple. Sassyfus has a couple of fights, big fights with uh, other people. Um, the aforementioned Emden is like his first big fight, his first big task, because Emden is in the in the in a competition between him and his owner, where he has to win 100 fights in a row, and if he does, then he's freed. Um, which is another thing of this show, like he Sestibus seems to want to fight his way out of slavery, even though he was literally offered by Emden's owner a way out, like I will pay for your freedom, and then you just have to work for me. Uh, which is, I mean, I guess a different kind of slavery because now you're working for a different owner, but uh, you're also not a fighting slave person. Yeah, he doesn't even turn it down based on the fact that, oh, like, I don't trust you because, you know, you're an owner or, you know, you're rich and you can do whatever, you know, once you get out of here, but if I fight my way free, then I have freedom. He's like, no, I have to stay in this tournament to win my freedom just for me. I was just like, ah, you're just an idiot. You're straight up an idiot. Yeah, yeah, and he seems to want to do it out of like a sense of uh, pride or something. Um, mm-hmm. And there's really no indication in the show or through the characters that Sestibus would have this sense of pride. Like he didn't even want to be a fighting slave at first, but once he started uh, winning, I guess he is suddenly filled with manly pride and determination of wanting to wanting to fight against other people and win his freedom and uh, I guess what I'm getting at here is I read as uh, before we were recording that it ran in a scene in the magazine that features photos of grab your idols and it seems to really fit in with that that whole vibe but the the if you go back to like Emden like he has more motivation uh, more realistic motivation for wanting to win any of his boxes boxing matches than anything Sestos does because mm-hmm. uh, he's he's pure sports uh, a funnel, like poor, poor, pure sports motivational funnel. Like he's just in there to get to the end of the uh, the nationals tournament, <laughs> and we don't care about it because we don't care about him. In the in the beginning, he's got like all these Japanese salaryman mentalities because um, he wants to do his best for you know his owners um, and you know show what he's made of. But at the same time, like he is the most moe fighter there is. Because in the in the first couple of early episodes, it's all like big doe eyes and like it wants you to make feel sorry for him, but you just can't. You kind of just wish he'd get pummeled the crap out of. Yep. Yeah, and that's another thing. Like when when we're watching regular sports anime, uh, and like this is a sports anime, it's about fighting. There there's wins and losses, uh, but there's not really a sense of stakes besides that uh, you are fighting for your life, I guess. Sometimes, but the, the fights that at least Sestibus was um, uh, involved in, they seem to stop be short of taking each other's lives. Um, but like in high school sports anime, you have a lot of stakes. You have only three years to, to win the Nationals, to get better and 
do all the things that typical sports anime one can do. They have uh, uh, more immediately. You have like third years and second years that are going to be graduating before you, so you want to be able to win for them. But like with Sescubus, uh, you just have uh, an indefinite amount of time to be able to fight and free yourself eventually, I guess. And like, yeah, you want to not be a slave, but I don't really get the impression that Sestibus doesn't want to be a slave. I get the impression that he wants to win fights. Yeah, and there's, there's no real indication that any of them dislike their station in life. Yeah. Like, they can't think of doing anything better. And the only reason, like, Emden can think of anything better is because he wants to bang the, the, the <laughs> queen. <laughs> yep. Which I get that. Okay. Sure. <laughs> Strive, strive but, high. I'm good. But like all of all of Sestas' friends, um, he, he's he's surrounded by like these three people who he's been, I guess, enslaved with for the longest amount of time. And why they're constantly with him, I don't know because they never seem to fight. They do work, so I guess they're slaving somewhere. But they're all getting trained by uh, Sestas' uh, manager, so to speak, who was himself a slave, and you know, I guess he's not now. Or he's a paid trainer? I, I don't know. Yeah, I did don't. not get a hit what his uh, station was in life at all. Yeah. Uh, but there, I mean, those three people are always with him, and they never have a single mark on them. Yep. So. Yeah, I don't know if they're... I mean, they are obviously, like, training to fight, but they threw Sesphus into the wolves when he was clearly not ready to do literally anything. I don't know why these three are not in the same position. Yeah, and he's clearly like supposed to be like the fastest, the the most keen, keenly observant, which you don't even find out until I think second to the last episode. <laughs> it's like, oh wow, you have this really good ability to see things like as they happen and re- re- respond in split seconds. It's like, oh wait, we just find that out like as the series is wrapping up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, some of the better moments in the show, I mean, the, the like five good moments in the show, usually are through when they're fighting, um, and we are allowed to kind of forget that this is uh, a show that we are uh, literally trying to watch and enjoy slaves fighting the same way that, that Romans were back in the day, um, and there seems to be no other point of reference for us as the viewer, which is uh, another problematic aspect of the show, but um, while he's fighting, at least, we are able to somewhat forget that, and we we see the the cat-and-mouse game of, of fighting, of Roman fighting, and there's a narrator that pops in and is like, during today boxing, you would not be able to punch people on the back of the head, which, like, obviously. <laughs> but, um, the... The general cat and mouse game between uh, Sescubus and Emgen, and Sescubus, and I forget what the guy's name is, but he was not Green a slave. Gloves. He was a regular fighter. What? Green gloves. Yep, green gloves. Yeah, uh, yeah that guy. He uh, the fight between him and Sescubus and Sescubus and Emgen. Those were very interesting fights. Uh, he Sescubus, you learn, is a very fast fighter, but he doesn't really have that uh, finishing move, and he doesn't really have the power to be able to just. Uh, punch someone and have it be a finishing move by, by way of his strength. And, like, being able to see him grow in that way is is interesting enough to uh, make me look up slightly while I'm eating my sandwich during lunch. And even even the uh, the BS training regiments, uh, like, to learn his ultimate, fi- uh, his ultimate power move or whatever, uh, he's 
working with a pickaxe in the fields and he's just digging holes uh, is what they describe it as. And he's just doing it over and over again. And apparently that motion is supposed to help him uh, with his, with whatever muscles he needs to do whatever he needs to do. But the move that results from that doesn't appear to have anything to do with the, that motion. Yep. <laughs> like at all. And like the only, the only, logical thing they throw in there is like when they increase the the size of the axe handle it's like oh well you're working on your grip strength it's like that's great but that's not how punches work (laughs) yeah yeah sure i mean i think they're using some of the same muscles by thrusting their arms out like that but uh we don't really get that explanation (laughs) we're just kind of like this is the same motion as a punch sort of so just keep doing it yeah and they'll they'll also run through you know, explanations of injuries with this really bad 3D CG uh, anatomical modeling, um, which half the time you're just like, that that's not how concussions work either. <laughs> but, you know, if you frame it in the, in like, oh, did they know that much about concussions back then? But if you're referencing modern boxing in your narration, you can't really say you don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah flawed storytelling all around and going back to your point about the uh the sort of gap between the motivation and storytelling of the development of characters i think if the show really just doubled down on being a historically grounded exploration of a character in that time fighting for his survival or freedom or both really um that would have made it much stronger, but I think they felt like they had to frame it like a high school sports manga. You know, that's yeah. They, they literally just put a face a facelift on the on the the, the that genre, and it's just it's just offensive. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why this exists, why anyone would want to read it, but um, you know, it exists, I guess. How did you feel about the uh, the animation? Because when this the the PV the the promotional video came out for it. It was it was full on showing how how 3D CG it was. Yeah, it was really off putting at first. Um, but as with most animation styles, even if they're bad, I just kind of get used to it by the end. Um, and every so often there was like really egregious CG where I'm like, oh, still CG. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, at least to my relatively untrained guys, I. I was fine with it. Not that great. I actually grew quite used to it by the uh, pretty early on, actually. And uh, like you said, every once in a while, just something would catch your eye. And in one of the instances, it was just this low camera looking up angle, and everybody's teeth were really defined whenever they had their mouths open. I was just thinking, man, that's some that's some <laughs> really good tooth work right there. <laughs> Maybe uh, whoever whoever did this is. Has a teeth fetish. Uh, so the manga are called Boxing Dark and Fisk Death Fighting. I don't really know what happens after this. I don't know if he gets his freedom. The Wikipedia article is pretty sparse. Kind of curious, um, but not enough to watch another season of this. I mean, if you can't bother to like actually animate your crowd cheering, and but you still have the sound engineer overlay a crowd cheering and. <laughs> The pictures of the crowd not even cheering. They're all just sort of looking down in their laps. That's that's a pretty good sign of, you know, when you should end your anime. 
That was pretty funny, though. <laughs> oh, God. Why would we give this, Hank? Because we must... You know, it just it just makes all the mediocre and good sports anime seem all the better when you have to live through this track. True, true. Uh, have you finished God Taxi? Oh yes, uh, that is that is fantastic. Yeah. Much must watch anime. Yeah, that you? last episode was yeah we we finished it last night. Last episode was incredible. Um, I just really like how everything wrapped up. Um, and the way that they like weaved all these narratives with. <laughs> Uh, this taxi taxi driver, um, and then he just keeps running into random people, getting involved in their stuff, and and then uh, he sort of resolved it, or at least tried to to the best of his ability. Yeah, was, I, I didn't know uh, if I liked the the quote unquote twist uh, or not because you know they'd been sort of hinting at things all the way around, but I didn't think it needed to go that extreme, but it was it worked in perfectly, and they, they worked with it perfectly, so I really couldn't compli- complain. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see uh, the tweet, or did you, rem- you remember, slash did you see the tweet of uh, an earlier episode where the doctor is like, what do I look to you, or what do I look like to you? And he says a gorilla and like we're watching that and we're of course like well yeah it's a gorilla what do you think he's gonna say but yeah. now we know yeah yeah that, like I, I saw so many tweets saying you know this is rewatchable this is infinitely right this is a show you could rewatch at least once yeah um and sort of mandatory that you do yeah and i totally agree just to get in on all the little hints that they're throwing down on what's going on yeah, unlike Cestus, which <laughs> is must not watch yeah. viewing. Full full thumbs down here. I want yeah. I want the uh, the thing taken its life taken. <laughs> yeah, skip this one. This was a half star uh, from the get go. Yeah, even even the the I don't think even the opening or endings will will save it because they were just horrible. Oh, we didn't even mention the needless repetition in every freaking episode. Which I have to imagine had to have been a budget thing. Yeah. I mean, they're still... They're doing CG. People do CG because it's cheaper, right? (laughs) I don't think so. Well, maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, like, the high motion uh, moments of, like, Love Live when they dance, that's CG. Um, And some... uh, What was the one that just did CG? That was, like, really off... Um, Gosh. It was some action or sports anime... But like Are you another... not talking about handshakers? No. <laughs> it was like one that has uh, the 2D animation for most of the time, but then when they're fighting, they did this CG thing. Uh, I don't remember what it is, but um, I, I thought it was because it was cheaper to do the CG. But if it's not, then I don't know why they would even ever do CG. Yeah, it just seems odd. Like, it's just an odd choice, and I don't know why. Like, maybe he knew somebody who needed a favor or wanted to work some with somebody... I don't know. There's there's no need for it, and actually, it, it makes it a little weirder because it's a historical show and presenting it in such a modern or via such, via such modern media. Uh, it's just yeah, why everything about the show is why. Yep, I agree. Let's see what this guy did before this. Uh, Beyblade. Here's a show I'll never watch. <laughs> Dragon Drive. Eat Man. Um. Eat Man. I heard. Good things, I want to say. Oh shit! You did the series composition for Giant Killing, but that was based off of that was better than this manga. Some Inuyasha storyboards, Gundam Wing scripts. This explains everything. Uh, yeah, I don't recognize most of the things on this guy's list, but he's done a lot. 
Uh, anyway, should we close out this episode? That, the fact that you've not heard of most of them probably is pretty telling. Yeah. Um, all right. So, you have anything else before we shut this down forever? Uh, I will just say that the the name, uh, which seems to like be really weird, and I'm still not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, uh, Sestus, uh, is actually based off of a historical thing. So they got one thing right. They were uh, the the gauntlets that are used on the dude's hands. Um, they were called. Uh, they were basically leather knuckle dusters known as uh, cestus, C-A-E-S-T-U-S. Um, they had little metal studs inserted into them. Uh, and that's basically what the character is named after. Uh, but that's, I think, about everything that the show got right. <laughs> <laughs> Other than slavery existing in ancient Rome. Yeah. Yeah, I remember you DMing me that, and I'm like, oh, that was that's actually pretty clever. Uh Props to the the manga con that one I guess. I'm I'm wondering. I really really gotta wonder how much better the manga is than the anime. So if anyone knows, if anyone wrong. knows, please respond in the posts. Because <laughs> this this show is just horrible. Yep. Yeah, I'm gonna be glad to never have to think about this again. Until the movie. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Ingkor, can we find you on the internet? I can find me here as the Bad Sports Anime Correspondent, if you haven't guessed by now. Um, you can also find me over at Anagamers. I co-host the Old Talker No Radio podcast with uh, Jared Nelson. And back issues of Otaku USA Magazine and Fandom Post. And I think that's it. And on Twitter, on the Tweety Box of Animated Inc. You can find me on Twitter, at Compassionate K. You can find this podcast on Twitter, at Taiku Podcast. That's T-A-I-I-K-U. You can find all of our episodes over at TaikuPodcast.com, where you can uh, listen to more of Ink talking about bad sports anime with me. Um, thank you, Ink, for talking about this. Wave, let's go boxing. No. <laughs> <laughs>